Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And this week, we're going to talk to you about the path to authority, if yes. you s- would like to become one. Well, we kind of teased this up on our last episode, so it's the least we could do. Right. So last time around, we talked about why you might want to become an authority. And, not, you know, not everyone's going to want to. There's certain things I think are a requirement of becoming uh, someone that would be called an authority. Uh, maybe you don't want to get there. Maybe you do. But today we want to talk about kind of the spectrum, maybe ranging from freelancer at the very beginning all the way up to authority at the other end in the middle some sort of like consult you know i call them consultants maybe you know rochelle would call them an expert we're going to talk through that and say you know if you wanted to progress from wherever you are to one that's closer to the other end of the spectrum some activities that you might engage in to get yourself there how you would know when you've sort of, it's working, I guess, you know, when you're sort of making forward motion, because it's not like a hard stop in between any of them, you know, authorities might do consulting and freelancers might do advisory consultative services at times. And for me, from the pricing side of the, the fence, how you charge for things and whether or not you have a product ladder, all these, are, there's a lot of things that go into it for me, but I think uh, that are very specific and tactical, which will, I'm sure will come up, but I think more this episode is going to be more broadly speaking about some of the things that activities you could engage in to move yourself from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. I want to hear that episode. <laughs> well, let's make it. For me, the path starts when someone goes out on their own. They probably had some kind of full-time job and they probably developed some skill that they feel like they're really good at. Uh, it's certainly in my world, the software development world, that is absolutely how it starts, where somebody is doing whatever. For me, it was FileMaker development. I was doing, it was just a silly desktop database. It's actually pretty powerful. I shouldn't say silly, but it's just this little thing probably hardly anyone's ever heard of. And I was working at Staples, my one and only corporate job. I worked in their advertising agency building catalogs for them using this like database software that I created from scratch. And I was really impressed with myself. And I was like, I was like, I should be getting paid more. And, uh, you know, they disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we came to loggerheads, as they say. And I, and I went out and I was like, well, I'll just go, I'll send my resume out to um, a firm. And I did that for a while. So I developed my skills further. I found out that I actually didn't know a 10th of what I thought I knew. And in-house at a consulting firm, you would call it a dev shop. And I didn't own it. It wasn't my business. Um, and I worked there. So between those two jobs, I ended up with this skill that I think by the end of it, I was actually pretty good at. I was certainly very well known for it because I did all of these things like write for the magazine and speak at the conference and stuff like that. And dear listener, maybe you're amazing at Photoshop or creating videos or, you know, whatever you're marketing and you're doing it internally and you're becoming dissatisfied with your job. What's the first step? You're probably going to say, forget this. I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to hang out my own shingle and I'm going to start taking on clients. That phase is usually a person like that usually builds by the hour to start because that's the obvious thing to do. And it is pretty easy, I'll admit. And that to me, that is like the prototypical freelancer where you've got this skill and you want to rent the skill out to clients by the hour, probably maybe by the day, maybe by the week, but probably by the hour. I mean, the word freelance comes from, it's like freelance, Lance for hire. So like a itinerant soldier, 
mercenary. I don't really care who I'm fighting for. I don't really care about the mission of either side. If you've got money, I've got a sword. We can get into why that maybe is good or bad, but if you like that, great. And if that, if you're totally cool with that and this, and I'm describing you and you're hundred percent happy, then, then you're done. <laughs> you know, you can just keep doing that. It, for me, I wasn't happy doing it just like that for a number of reasons. Uh, some money, some not money, some lifestyle type stuff, but I wanted to go up the, or across the spectrum into more of the consultant area, more of the authority area. With all that said, <laughs> I think of when somebody first starts to freelance is that they have some kind of specialized knowledge. But what's interesting is like the yin and the yang. I also find that a freelancer will have a tendency towards being a generalist and they'll resist niching. So you might disagree with your developer crowd. With my consultant crowd, the example I would use is somebody who came from marketing or human resources. And so they go out and they want to be the HR generalist or the marketing generalist. They don't want to specialize in an industry. They don't want to specialize in an aspect of marketing. It's, it's a generalist. They have a very specific skill typically, but they're approaching it and building their business, if you will, as a, as a generalist. Yeah. And that's on my side of the fence, that's a full stack developer where they can do back end, they can do front end, they know a bunch of different languages. Yeah. And they, they pride themselves on that. And they, they just want to, I just want to build software for people. I don't care who, and you, you mentioned, you mentioned that specialist and generalist in the same breath. And I wanted to kind of quickly, I think it's important for this episode to distinguish between, I see at least two axes of specialization. One is in your craft where you can get more and more specialized in the craft of what you do. So in my world, it'd be going from a full stack developer to a front end developer, to a react developer, to a react native developer. So you're getting more and more specific about what skill you rent out. And then there's the concept of remaining a full stack developer and being very general in your skills, but focusing down specifically on restaurants and then pizza places and then single location pizza places that are owned by someone named Sal. There's two, at least two different axes that you can specialize on. Yeah. The vertical. And Right. And yeah, vertical or horizontal. And you might probably don't want to do both. You probably don't want to do react native apps for pizza place owners named Sal. <laughs> Maybe too small. <laughs> Becoming an expert can develop, you know, the next stage. And when you're, when you're a consultant, I would say is as distinct from a freelancer, I think it is going to require specialization, some degree of specialization on one or both of those axes. Yes. Yeah, you have to have something to sell that people value. I mean, I used to look at it this way. When I was in big firm consulting, I would have clients. And clients would sometimes say, oh, I want to become a consultant. But when you were a corporate person in those functional areas, you didn't get to the same deep level of knowledge. They had broader knowledge. They had broader skills in terms of uh, running groups, teams of people, reporting up through the organization. I mean, they had other skills, but their technical skills, their expertise wasn't as deep. And so when they'd go out on their own, I, I just from observation, I've never done an actual study of it, but the people that I experienced tended to go in one of two directions. One is that they would stay in that, and I would call that a freelancer. They would stay in that gun for hire 
mode. And then the other group would say, oh my God, I really want to get in deep on X. And they would burrow in and create a business with that. And I guess I should have said a third category because the third ones were really reluctant consultants. They didn't really want to do it. They wanted to be back in corporate, but they just consulted until the next position came along. Mm. To me, I've got a very clear, there's one thing that's very clear demarcation between a freelancer and a consultant. And that is if people are consulting with you or your clients asking you questions and you give them answers and that's your work product. Again, it's not black and white. You might have some clients that are paying you to, to build stuff like extra pair of hands, build this rails app. Okay, great. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And maybe they're asking you some questions like, should we build it like this or build it like that? The way that you might ask a carpenter who's putting cabinets in your, in your kitchen. And that might be some of your gigs, but some of your other gigs, and I would advocate for people who are looking to progress through the spectrum, you want more and more of your gigs, your engagements to be like this, where you're getting paid to answer questions and you're not building stuff. So it's more like you are a, um, a home inspector. Or, well, I guess they're kind of on site, but you're more like an architect where people are saying, okay, look, we're planning on doing some stuff. We'd love to ask you some questions about this before we waste a bunch of money building the wrong thing. And you're still going to have some kind of deliverable. You know, an architect has blueprints, but they're not making the building. To me, a freelancer is either making the building, pounding nails, or, or later after the building's built, they are keeping it clean you know, doing security support, maintenance, those kinds of things. And that's all fine. Like you can build a business on any one of those things. That's not a judgment at all. But if you want to stay solo, which is generally the, the people I speak with, if you want to stay solo and not build a, a, a build out like a firm or a big team or have a whole bunch of employees, then going from freelancer to consultant to me is all about becoming recognized as well, we can talk about this more, but but essentially attracting clients who really just want to pick your brain or get answers to questions and de-risk something that they're going to have someone else build. So that's kind of an over, oversimplification, but that's the idea. It's like, a, I want to consult with you. Your client comes to you for a consultation, consultant. So if, if most of the time you're in your basement coding and you only talk to the client once a week, you're not a consultant. That's that you building stuff that they tell you to build. It's not the same right. thing. Some of this is semantics, and I know you like to call that consulting. I, I, I'm calling this middle category an expert. So for me, the difference between an expert and a freelancer, and I hear what you're saying about the, about the consulting, but I've seen freelancers use consulting skills also to a lesser extent, perhaps. But I think it's on this, on this particular line of the matrix, I think it's about a really deep knowledge. In other words, if you're an expert, you should have... A, I just use the word should, you will have a deep knowledge of something. Now, it could be a piece of a practice area. It could be a, a way that you slice and dice that practice area. So it could be that you know a lot about uh, organizational development, but you're especially knowledgeable about that in, in high technology companies, for example. So it's how you kind of slice and dice and you start to think really sell your expertise, this deep knowledge in different ways. Yep. I would agree with that. At, at some point you need to actually be good. And that, that's, that's something that I say 
a lot where, you know, people are asking me like, oh, what tactics can I use in my marketing to attract better clients? I'm like, well, wait a second. Like this is predicated on the notion that you're actually good. Like, you know what you're doing and you're good at it. So like, let's just, let's just get that on the table. You can't just like say you're a consultant and expect people to pay you to answer their questions if you haven't earned the trust and you have to have some street cred. Like, why would anybody trust your opinion? So let's go into this a little bit more. Because if we don't 100% agree, and I don't think we will because we have different audiences, then it's going to be confusing. So let's kind of map out some of the differences. So like at this middle level where you're really good at what you do, whatever that might be, whether it's a special expertise area or maybe you're just a marketing expert, but specifically for uh, yoga studios. You're a generalist in the marketing sense, but you're highly specialized on yoga studios or someone who's just like amazing at, um, I don't know, can you throw me like a marketing, some like really, really specific marketing skill like. Um, well, lead uh, generation is considered a marketing skill. Sure. I was, I was going to go even more specific, like uh, retail architecture or something, like creating a retail environment to create an experience like Joe Pine would say. So anyway, whatever it is, it's, it's more of a, it's part of your craft. And it's not applied to a specific industry. So whichever axis you're specializing on, you've specialized on it and you're like confident. You are, you are like, I definitely know. Like I put myself up against in the top 10 in the world of like this particular weird thing that I chose to specialize in. So you're, you're confident. You're, you have a sense of mastery over what it is that you do. You can reliably get results. Yes. So you oh, get these. That's a good ad. Reliably get results. Yeah. Yes. If we use the sports metaphor, it's like, you know, you're going to hit a double. If you get up to bat, you're going to hit a double at least. Okay. But we're talking about business, right? So in your sort of the world of people that you uh, help, what kind of engagements are these? So what are they selling at this, oh, at this okay. space? Okay. Mostly they're selling. Um, some kind of a process. That's how I think of it, that there's an outcome that the client has identified with the help of the expert. This is collaborative. It's not the client says, I want an X and you go build it. The client says, I want an X and you say, well, why? What's it going to do for you? And you start to have those kinds of discussions. And then you apply your expertise through a process. And one of the things when I work with freelancers who are trying to move over to that, that expert space, one of the things they struggle with sometimes is creating a process. It's like you have to know what it, how you're going to get there in order to be able to have an open conversation with a client where you're not focused on, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do that? You have to have some kind of a big picture process on how you're going to get to the end. And then you can let it go in the meeting and talk about it and talk about the client's problem. And then let me just add to that, that I always laugh about this because consultants, and I was guilty of this in, in my earlier career, is consultants, we always think everything's about our process. Let me show you why my process is better than Joe's process and is really better than Angela's process. Clients don't care. They don't care. They care about the outcome. You need to have a process so that you don't have to think about it when you're having conversations with clients and you know you can have that conversation without worrying about how you're actually going to deliver. Can you think of an example that would instantiate this for, for 
a developer like me who's like, what's a, what's an outcome that someone in the past that you've used a process to achieve, like increased morale or like what's. Oh yeah. There's a ton of things in the HR space. Um, A classic example would be um, there's a leader who has a team and the team isn't working and they have some big goal. And certainly in the IT world, they might have a goal to release a software product. And so the process might be working with the team leader and the team to take them from what maybe is dysfunctional or at least not fully functional into a fully functional team that's going to get their their big goal done. So when you're doing that, you're working as the the consultant, as the expert on, on teams, you're working with a leader of that team and you're going to design a process based on who's on the team, what their goals are. You're going to design a process to identify the barriers that get in the way of operating as a team. And you might be involved with teaching some skills with some people, but you'd identify a process, you know, step one, step two, step three. And you would work that through on some kind of a timeline, again, depending on what the client needed. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that you would use your process to develop a process for them? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So just as an example, like somebody might say, well, I always make sure that I interview every team member as part of this process, or I always give them my special private assessment tool. And then we run them through an example of that. So people will have different things in their toolkits. I think of all those things as process. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And it does. And it's meaningfully different from software development, obviously. So the software development stuff breaks down really pretty cleanly with the um, sort of architecture, general contractor, builder, janitor model. Like there's a lot of parallels. What you're describing is way, I would say it's significantly more intangible, which isn't bad, but it, it makes it a lot blurrier between the hands work and the heads work that I usually talk about. So like sell your head, not your hands. Yeah. You're never building any, I mean, you're creating a process or you're designing a process using your process to design a process for them to have less dysfunctional department, but you're not doing it. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not delivering a thing. Yeah. You're not delivering, you're not making a box that you deliver. Now there's some examples of consulting where you do deliver some sort of a box a little bit differently. And as an example, employee communication. So if you have a big, uh, the company has a big benefits rollout, you'll probably hire somebody to develop and deliver all those employee communications. That's that's the an example of something I could think of. Or even a PR campaign looks a little bit more like something you build. But yeah, a lot there's a lot of intangibles as well. Right. Yeah, and there can be even on even on one project for say a software developer where where I say it's super clear, there's probably parts where even if you're a, a solo developer, there's probably parts at the beginning where you're acting like the architect and asking all these tough questions and like, well, what do we need to build here? Are we building like a house, a garage, or a doghouse? Great, here's the design. And then they start building it and now they're in, in general contract. Well, if it's just them, then they're just in carpenter mode. And then when they're done, if the client keeps them on to maintain, the, make sure the plugins are updated so the security, you know, then now they're the janitor or the maintenance guy. You can be all of those different things. And in, in that world, 
and there might be a spot in the middle of the the building where you need to put on your architecture architect hat again because there was a surprise it's true that it's like this is all super squishy it's not like real clean lines between them but i'm trying to help people kind of visualize like okay well, what's the difference like well I feel like a freelancer, but they do ask me a lot of questions or I called myself a consultant because everybody says I can charge more than if I say I'm a freelancer, but really everyone's just telling me what to do. You touched on this earlier. I think a big part of once you re- reach the consultant slash expert phase is you're pushing back more on the client. You're, you're challenging assumptions. You're making them convince you that the path that they think they want to take is the right one. Um, there's a lot more, a lot more pushback, a lot more, uh, a lot less order taking and a lot more asking why. Prove well, it to me. Yeah. And you say no more often because mm-hmm. if somebody has got an unrealistic expectation and I know I can't deliver that, you've got to turn them down. Mm-hmm. Right. And on my, uh, on my sort of litmus test, the, my framework of these three things, that's one of the milestones in at, at the consultant phase is that you're turning down leads. You're not taking every lead. Like you, you're, you definitely need to be turning down leads. <laughs> to me, this is even more of a lead than a lead because it's, you've had this conversation with somebody and you, they've bared their soul to you, right? About what's happening in their business. And it's, it's hard to then say, I can't help you. Right. But, but that's, that is what you have to do if they don't see, if you can't get alignment with where they want to go and what you believe is possible. And they may find somebody else who does believe it's possible, but it wasn't for you. So you have to say no. Right. It does go beyond the sales cycle into delivery where when I was doing consulting, I would say, look, one of the good things of hiring me, like a big part of my value proposition is that I'm going to tell you no sometimes because I am not like once we start, my goal is to create a successful project. Like this project needs to be a success and I'm not going to let you mess it up and I'm not going to let your outside team mess it up. I'm going to do everything I can to make it a success. So we need to agree on what success looks like right now because that's what I'm going to fight for. I'm not going to fight for you and I'm not going to fight for the outside person who's the builder. I'm going to make sure it's a success for your ultimate goal, which is probably to sell this to an investor or whatever their, whatever their goal was for this software project to be created. So then what I would try and do with that was to get them to understand that if I say no to them, it's not because I think it's, um, I don't like the suggestion that they're making or some ego thing between us and them. It's because based on my experience, and if you, if you trust me, great, if you don't, then I shouldn't work with you, but you have to trust me and them to understand that my, um, my ultimate goal is for the project to be a success. So that what that allows me to do when they come in and say, oh, well, we think we should add a carousel to the homepage. And I'd be like, and I would know that that was a bad idea. And I would, because it, because it's not always a bad idea, but in this scenario, it adds nothing to the project, but time and labor and more bugs. And, and I would say, well, okay, we can, I'll write that down. Um, how is this going to contribute to the stated goal of this project? Like, well, it doesn't, but you're in there anyway, working on the website. So can't you just have them put a carousel at the top? Our our competitors just did that too. And I'd be like, well, we can put that on a V2 list, but I don't see it. I can't make a case for adding it into this project as is. So let's get this released, put the win, a check mark in the win column. And then we can revisit this sort of V2 list of things. Probably more things will come up, but I'm just going to say no to this for now. And, and the point is that I'm always saying like, look, I'm not going to let you screw up this project. I'm going to do everything I can to prevent the client because it happens all the time. The client starts backseat driving and 
that just ends up in a crash. So anyway. Um, well, I kind of think of some part of that process as identifying who the client is, which is something as a consultant you always want to do right in the beginning is who's the client. The easy answer is it's who's paying the bill. But then assuming that it is, you then have to have clarity around what's the goal? Who am I working for, including the project? And so there are times that I've taken on clients where they were doing the wrong thing for the project, right? And, and after advising them what this meant, they did it anyway. In your example, you're building something, it's, you have the ability to say no. If they go to their people and make a decision that's outside of what you suggested, they're going in a different direction. So it's understanding who the client is. And that in, to me, that includes the project, Right. Sometimes the client is the project, but somebody has to own it on the client side. So you know where to go when it looks like it might run off the rails. Right. Yeah. So that situation you just described is like either the client didn't trust you or there was a different goal than what you thought. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, right. It, so, yeah. or that what happens a lot of times, especially I used to do a lot of work in, in mergers. And what happens is the CEO can be very mercurial and makes a pronouncement and if the internal client isn't strong enough, they just bend with the wind. So you have to coach them through doing it. I mean, it's, yeah, that that's a whole different category of consulting. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're getting at here, like the reason to bring this all out and put it on the table, this big mass is to highlight that like this is a consultant's life. Like that's the life of what a consultant is. They're struggling with stuff like this. There's tons of, it's like all about communication skills and it's all of that stuff. It's not like what I would lump into the, the very beginner freelancer phase where somebody says, hey, we need a, um, some Rails code written. You want to write us some Rails code? Sure. What kind of code do you want? Well, we need these three things. Great. I'll do it right now. It's more like the waiter waitress type of model where like, uh, could you go get me a sandwich? Yeah, great. Here you go. And again, that's fine if like if you're happy with that, because it's very safe. It's in a certain sense. It's very safe. You don't you're not putting yourself at risk. You're not there's not tons of money on the line. People say, hey, do this and be like, all right, here you go. Here's my bill. Uh, it's fine. So if, but if you want to move up to this next stage, that's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like it's like this judo match almost. Uh, once you get into the once you get past the honeymoon phase at the beginning of a project, it's almost like this judo match of actually helping them. It's not always like this, but it's pretty common for them to kind of wrestle with you over the right approach to getting to the, the end goal. Or like I think might've been the case in the story you just told, maybe the end goal wasn't a hundred percent clear, or maybe the end goal was secret, you know, something that someone didn't want to admit was the real goal. So there's, yeah. it's very and that complicated. happens a lot in, in all kinds of projects. Yeah. It's very complicated. Yeah, politics at play. And if you have more than one person, there will be politics on some level. Well, and then maybe what you, if you think about those two categories and then you take it to, well, what does an authority look like then? Then I think it's, it's that deep knowledge, right? It's the same idea as an expert. I think the difference in that line item is influence. And maybe in the example I used, someone who is an authority 
could go directly to the CEO, again, with the approval of the client, but they would be in the room with the board or the CEO. And that's the kind of presence, not person, but presence, that could then take on the hidden issues and would be comfortable influencing. Now, I'm also talking externally influencing in terms of building tribes and all that, but in terms of that example, an authority is able to rise to the the highest level of the organization and deal with what comes up within their subject area. Yes. Okay, so let me let me float this by you because I feel fairly strongly that an authority is going to be doing less and less consultative work like that. And here's why, because it's not going to have as much of an impact as other things they could be doing, but go ahead and shoot holes in that because it's, it's just some sort of shooting from the hip here. But like when I think of people who I consider to be authorities, I do believe that they are doing some very high level, you know, board level consulting. And I also think a lot of it's pro bono. Maybe not, maybe a lot is, is an overstatement, but I, I believe that I've, seen people who I consider to be authorities do a lot of pro bono work at the board level for like nonprofits and that sort of thing. And so they're doing that kind of work, but I think it feels to me like the, that the one-on-one consulting engagements that an authority would engage in would be less and less over as their authority grew because they could have a bigger impact doing something like um, a keynote presentation to 10,000 people, right? Yeah. Speaking, writing more books, um, maybe doing uh, some sort of educational, uh, something to spread the the idea. By the time they've gotten to that stage, they've got like an important idea articulated in a way that's connecting with people in the current culture. And it might be an ancient idea, but it's connecting with, with the new people. They keep making new people every day. So these old <laughs> ideas need to be like rephrased to still make sense. So either... I agree with you. I, I think my answer would be not necessarily because there are, and it, it really depends on, you know, the kind of authority you're wielding and the business model that you want. True. So with big corporates in particular, if you're an authority with big corporates, you need to be seen. And I'll, I'll use an example. Like who's an, yeah. Who's an example? Yeah. There's, there's, um, uh, so Jean Bliss would be an example. So she is a, customer experience expert. And if you look at her stuff, she's written at least three books. She speaks on a regular basis, but she consults. She's working with those top clients and trust me, she's getting paid. She's not doing it for free. Um, And that would be an example where you, at that level and the way she's designed her business model, you would have to be in there with that C-suite or you won't have credibility. That's part of it. How's she not just an expert, though? Well, she started an an organization, a not-for-profit organization with some other people. She co-founded it for uh, chief customer experience officers. I believe the first, I may not be getting this exactly right, I believe she was the first customer experience officer for a Fortune 500 company. She writes on this stuff extensively. She speaks. There are other authorities in that space, but she is very clearly a key authority. And, you know, it just depends on who you talk to. Like, that's not my audience, right? The corp- corporate 500 people or Fortune 500 people. But most people that are in the customer experience field would know who she is and, you know, have experienced her in some way. So 
Yeah, but I just use that as an example. But there, there are lots of consulting areas where you're still going to want to do those projects, but they'll look differently, especially if you're a soloist. I mean, you're not going to have a, a team of 30 doing something. I have uh, one set of clients that do something that we we called, we, we decided to call it parachute consulting because these guys, they're not interested in doing those big, long assignments. They want to parachute in for a day or two and parachute back out. So really what that quote unquote consulting look like is a lot like leading a workshop. You know, it looks more like that in and out. And, you know, we called it consulting, but it's, to me, it was more of a training and development exercise. So, yeah, but but the flip side is I'm not saying that that's required by any stretch of the imagination. And I think a lot of people would prefer to have less one-on-one consulting and more time on books and courses, maybe some group some kind of group consulting or group coaching, if, if that's the, the outcome. I, I wouldn't necessarily say no. Oh, another example would be, would be Charles Green, who we've had on the show. He does a lot of work with corporations. Now, he has a team of people. He's not a soloist. But they're regularly delivering trust engagements to big companies. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you're right, because as you're talking through that, the my definition of authority is colored heavily by a couple of things that are specific to me, soloist, business model, and things like that, you know, like pricing approach and lifestyle goals, like things like that. But I mean, the show is called the business of authority. So like once you get to authority status, what kind of business can you build around it? And there's lots of different kinds. There's a particular kind for me and for a lot of people I work with that does stay solo, uh, does leverage the expertise, is doing fewer and fewer one-on-one engagements and more and more, you know, bottom of the pyramid stuff. You're right. As, as you talked through, I was like, yeah, she's right. It goes back to another point, I believe, on the differences is when you're an authority, you get to pick that business model. You build your business model around what you want to do. Right. Yeah. Like maybe you like flying around and talking to people in person. Like yeah. Maybe that, you like, like one-on-one. Maybe that's your thing. And you can you can whatever you can fund your mission however it is that you feel yeah however you want well look at tom peters i mean his basic business model i mean i, I don't know all the ins and, and, and outs but he's talked about this quite a bit he, he just loves to fly around giving speeches and he's a really good speaker i mean i've heard him a few times he's fabulous but he likes that that the way that energy works for him and how he does as many speaking gigs a year as he does and still write new books i don't know but it it works for him yeah that like makes my skin crawl imagining that lifestyle <laughs> <Yeah>. so, right but <laughs> it, yeah but it's yeah. Hard, hard i would find it really difficult but he he makes it look fun i won't say easy but he sure looks like he's enjoying himself sure we spent some time describing the sort of freelancer-ish lifestyle and sort of the consultant expert-ish lifestyle and what a client engagement looks like. And so what can we do to, to flesh out that at the authority level? What are the things that authorities do behaviorally that you think, say I'm on this journey and I'm like, oh, I, th- I think I'm becoming an authority. Like, how would I know? Like, what kind of things would be happening to me or what kind of things would I be engaging in that would tell me that I'm reaching authority status? Well, I think one of the pieces of this is your content, right? So when you're a freelancer, maybe you do a little bit of content development here and there for audiences, but it would be sporadic. 
Um, and if you're an expert, maybe your video, doing it like a video series or podcasting or a blog, I think when you get to the authority level, you're hyper-focused on that. And you've, and you've got a consistent flow of content and, you know, whatever platforms make sense for you. But, but yeah, and so when you, to me, the authority, that's just one element. But I think when you start to feel the difference, and I think we were talking about this on the, on the last episode, when you start to feel the difference is when people are signing up for your list they're engaging with you, whether that's in social media or on your list generally, you know, having a back and forth conversation or the media starts to pay attention or you're getting more uh, requests for interviews, requests for content. You can feel it. It's a momentum. It isn't necessarily a tipping point, but there's the momentum starts to carry you forward. But you have to be hyper focused and have a consistent flow in order to make that happen. When I picture a freelancer and then consultant and then authority, it's like you can engage in a lot of the same behaviors on the surface, but in the freelancer phase, typically they're not attracting that many people. They're a little bit commoditized, a little bit undifferentiated, maybe a lot undifferentiated. Authorities are the exact opposite of that. They're totally differentiated. They have like a really strong brand. You know, they stand for something and you got to have something to stand for, I feel like. And and the other thing that I see in this sort of just mental picture, if I have this visual in my head of like a freelancer just sort of like standing on the corner playing guitar to no one and the authority like crowds of people coming to them, <laughs> you know, and it's like and it's hard to put your it can be hard to put your finger on, you know, in the music world, it can be hard to put your finger on what the difference is, you know, like how is it that, you know, Ben Folds can still, you know, I went to a Ben Folds concert last night and like he, the crowd was like, he had the palm of his hand and he's good and everything, but like, but, but what's the thing he's good at? He's good at this thing with the crowd and like somehow connecting with them. And like, there's there, he stands for, he definitely stands for something and he just pulls these people in, uh, in a way that I feel like if he was standing on the corner, he'd draw a crowd, you know, there's something different. Yeah, I, I kind of put that in two different categories and they okay. come together in, in that example. So one is is a point of view. You know, what do you believe in? And so a freelancer typically doesn't have a point of view, right? Right, you're like just, we said. You're doing free, work. Freelance, right. And a lot of experts and a lot of the people I work with are experts who want to become authorities. So an expert usually has an implied point of view, but they may not have articulated it yet or they're trying to articulate it, but they're st- like they're just not there yet. Whereas an authority is going to have a clear, articulate, written point of view. I don't want to say in stone, but it's 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 set down so other people can react to it. But then if if you also think about this engagement idea, so a freelancer is going to have a day day by day focus. This is what I'm going to do. It's it's Tuesday. This is what I'm going to do today. Okay. Today is Wednesday. This is what I'm going to do. An expert typically is going to focus on the essentials to work and to build their business, right? They want more projects. They want to make sure the work they're doing is meaningful and all of that, right? But the authority does all of that and then also engages people. And that's to me, that's where a skill set like a musician who can pull in the crowd, you know, like a, 
you know, a, a consultant who's an expert on something, but also has amazing communication and engagement skills. We love to follow people like that. They can be mesmerizing. Right. Yeah. I, I love the point of view angle. No pun intended. The, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just couldn't agree with that more. It's it totally maps, totally maps. So that's a really, really good criteria. You have to have something to to hang your hat on, and I think a lot of us, you know, I've been there myself. A lot of us have struggled with, well, how do I say this, and what do I want? But once you get it, it's like you're on fire. It's like, oh yes, now I know. We talk about momentum; it contributes to that momentum. It also, I think, helps the idea spread. Like to me, there's very, it's very much about like the the point of view. To me, is kind of like the idea; they're tied together. Yeah, it's and, your view about the idea. Yeah, it's funny how you could be. Sometimes someone will say it back to you, or someone to be interviewing you, and it just falls out of your mouth in a new way that just it like goes off like a firecracker, and you're like, "Oh, that's how I should say that." And like that's how it becomes over time as you kind of maybe at this consultant or expert level, and you've got this implied point of view, as you put it, which I love. It's you start to like if you're looking for it, you can start to to see the cement drying. It's like, oh, it's like or, or more like a better uh, metaphor would be like the diamond hardening, you know, being polished and like, whoa, and this is turning into like something. And you you find out like the way that you could to say to express your point of view in ways that just explode in people's heads like firecrackers and like what? So that's uh, why it's so great doing interviews once you you've got a framework, you build it out. It, it, a lot of people do in interviews because people are asking you questions from a different perspective and you think about things in a new way. You start writing about it, speaking about it in a new way. And to me, that's all part of this. It's a language development over time. Nobody starts out knowing all the words they're going to use, but we each have some very specific words that mean very specific things that we use over and over and over again. And that's where that comes from, is having that point of view and then starting to socialize it. Yes, another great, great way to put it, socializing it. It's like road testing it and then hardening it. And it can it can come out a little soundbitey, but not not in a bad way. It's just you've got these lines that, you know, land. It's almost like a it's almost like a comedian, like. They know, like, they work on the lines. They're not perfect. They're horrible at first, no matter how good they are. And over time, they get them down to, like, they know how to say the the bit in a way that's going to land. To me, there are parallels there. So, you know, you go to see the same comedian twice in a row, and, like, beat for beat, breath for breath, the show will be exactly the same because they've got it figured out. And, like, that's not inauthentic. It's not fake. That's just how they have to do it to make the crowd to get the result that they want. So. Yeah, it, it's funny that you say sound bites because one of the things that I do when I when I do strategy is at the end of the brand brief, I always convert everything into a half a dozen sound bites. And I've had clients say, Oh my God, the sound bites were genius. It was like we did all this other stuff, but what made the difference for them was knowing how to talk about what they're doing and they do change over time as you figure out what works with media or clients or whatever this tribe is you want to engage but having sound bites is huge it builds confidence have we left any stone unturned well i was kind of thinking about sort of the business model you know we've talked about this a little bit 
there's a couple things that are sort of tied together in that for me. So we think about a freelancer is your business is entirely 100% dependent on your day to day, right? You get sick and you can't work. There's no revenue coming in. Just as an example, with an expert, typically your business is still heavily dependent on your day-to-day actions. But there may be some other things you may have developed, um, like Todd Tresseter, for example. He's got all these different courses and products and downloads. I mean, he's got a ton of content on his site. While there are aspects of the business that are still dependent on him, it's not totally dependent. You know, you start to find ways to to leverage, and then. Um, the authority business model, I just think that that's where you're designing it around your genius and how you want to work. So you want to be a solo authority? Great. You're going to you know, you're going to do books, speaking, consulting, some combination of all three or two of the three probably. So you're going to build that in a way that works for you. And maybe you want to build a firm and you want to have employees. You can do that. It gives you the flexibility That's how I see the difference. A freelancer typically isn't building a firm of other freelancers. No, no. I mean, sometimes they see that as their only path to escape the hourly trap, but it's unless they want to build a firm like they actually want to. Right. That's not going to work out great. (laughs) Well, you think about the person in, in that freelance spot. They may at some point feel like they're on the hamster wheel. Or that yeah, they have maybe. to take whatever comes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, if you, if you keep doing that, eventually, you know, if you're charging by the hour and you're filling up your time, eventually you're going to feel like you're on the hamster wheel. Like, okay, so how is my life going to change in the next three to five years? With an expert, I think they perhaps are more likely to stay in their comfort zone in terms of how they position themselves. So it, they might... It's not that they resist niching, but they may not niche as deeply as they could. You know, there may be sort of a process of that. Whereas the authority typically is going to position themselves in white space. Now, it's got to be an area that has some kind of an interest, right? You're not truly by yourself, but you've staked out a piece of territory within that niche that's just yours. Jonathan, you know, you're, you're the pricing guy. We could say that better than the pricing guy, but I'm using this just as an example. I'll take that. You know, whenever I think of something, in fact, we talked about it in advance of the recording. Something happened with with a pricing thing. I have to tell you about it. (laughs) So you're associating in white space and you're building that out because you don't want to be a pale imitation of somebody else. You want to be 100% you with your point of view, your business model, um, your process, if you will, if you're doing consulting or the the way that you teach people if you're writing books and and teaching courses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so in terms of things and authority would sell. So like what would make up their income streams of a business? It's things like books, video courses, in-person courses, maybe online courses. It could be paid masterminds. It could be speaking gigs. It could be consulting. Um, what am I leaving out? Coaching. It, coaching. Yeah. Like yeah, a Marshall group, group Goldsmith and one-on-one. kind of. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, I mean, you, you know, you could still do one-on-one just at very high price points. Yeah. Very high. It'd have to be to make sense. Yeah. Well, his price points are very high. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of this episode, but the highlight for me was the point of view thing where you go from basically no point of view to 
to, on the one end, to an extremely clear, concrete point of view on the other end. That's a pretty important bone in the skeleton here. <laughs> That's like a well, and and the thing is, it's not like you you have to be in the far. If you think of authority as the far right column, it's not like you have to be on the right column on everything. Um, if you want to work towards authority, and what I would argue is, if you're in the freelancer space and you're starting to say, you know what, I, I think I'm ready to kind of move on to this next thing, I would start with your point of view. That's something you could develop it just as well as an authority. It'll just, you know, it'll take you longer to socialize it and get it out there. But when you start thinking about it, you literally change the dialogue that you have with clients because you're looking at it in different ways. So as you might say, if you had a meeting with somebody who didn't feel like a fit, you might say, I wonder why they're not a fit. What was it about that conversation? And then you decide that they have a view about your subject matter or about how an organization works that doesn't agree with your worldview. Mm-hmm. You've, you've just learned something. Right. And then you like go, maybe not immediately go all in, but the idea is to double down on that difference. When you said that Pia Silva from Worst of All Design immediately jumped to mind. She's like badass design, you know, it's for <laughs> badass your brain. I love that name. Yeah, it's so great. Like you go there and her, all of her uh, sort of testimonial picture people are all like have neck tattoos and they're totally badass. It's like, yeah, right. I get it. Like, so if somebody comes along in like a khaki suit. I don't think we're being good, right? They just own that, that area and... But it's aspirational. Like, I don't have yeah. any tattoos, but I'd like to be a badass. I, I mean, right? I would, I yeah. would absolutely talk to her. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> when you're feeling like you're on the, in the hourly trap, you're on the hamster wheel, feast, famine cycle, you can't, take, you can't take it again. You're like, I'm not, something has to change. I can't do this again next year. Uh, then go all in on something. Like, yeah, just pick, know, one, pick one thing. Yeah could be a contrarian as long as I don't mind contrarians as long as they can support their argument could be uh, something that drives you crazy about your industry it could be um, there's so many things it could be like what annoys you okay fight that there you go like that's an easy way that's a simple way like what drives you crazy all right be the enemy of that that's your mission you rid the world of hourly billing yeah exactly right (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I mean it's you either alleviate pain or you bring them joy yeah right right. I mean those are the two human emotions we're appealing to. We could do a whole episode probably on that. <laughs> I know, we, we may have done one, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, cool, okay, we should probably stick a fork in it at this point. I think we've kind of, I hope we've covered it. Uh, dear listener, you can let us know if we've done a good job. Yeah, did, what, you know, did we miss anything, listeners? Yeah, you can bug us on Twitter, at Consulting Chick or at Jonathan Stark, on the Twitters. <laughs> Love to cool. hear it on Twitter. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.